Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that my speech and my message will not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. I know I know many of you and have confirmed many of you in the past and so on, but just to make sure for those who may be new or have not met me, I'm Steve Breedlove, and I have the privilege of being the Bishop of the Diocese of Christ Our Hope. And we are delighted and grateful for Christ Church and its ministry among us. So I'm thankful to be here. It's been a wonderful weekend. I will say this about Christ Church. They have gotten their money's worth this weekend. We had wall-to-wall meetings all day yesterday and a confirmation, I mean, in an ordination last night and two services today and a confirmation and reception of 17 people today. So anyway, it's wonderful to be here among you. Please turn with me in your Bibles. If you can grab a Bible or even on your phone, as long as the ringer's turned off, to the Old Testament text in Zechariah 9. I'm going to springboard from there to another text in Zechariah, and I want you to be able to read along with me as I go. The text from Zechariah is probably familiar to most of you. It's quoted by St. Matthew and St. John in their respective gospel accounts of the triumphal entry and normally read on Palm Sunday. Now, Matthew and John are the gospels that students agree are generally written with the strongest view to speaking to Jewish readers. So it was very meaningful for Jews to include one of the most crucial and specific and familiar Old Testament messianic prophecies in Zechariah 9. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. The promised Christ, the son of David, would enter the city of Jerusalem triumphantly, following the same road as his forebearer, King David, riding the same royal steed, a donkey, and by the way, the donkey is a royal steed. Benji, you can preach on that next Palm Sunday if you want to. It's a great message, okay? <laughs> Years ago, I was in Uganda with ministering with Bishop Owa, and he labeled me Bishop Kana, which in the local language means Bishop Donkey. And uh, so Bishop Owa is a great jokester, and he would introduce me as Bishop Kana, and the people would kind of look at each other like, what are we supposed to do? Because... <laughs> Donkey in their language also means what it also means in our language, you know. <laughs> and he would go on to say he's Bishop Connor because he's carrying Jesus from village to village. And in fact, I've preached in 14 different villages over three days. And so indeed, I was Bishop Connor. I love the, the, I love the title, okay. But the, the tri- I'm sorry, i got to get back on track here. Therefore, the triumphal entry is a bold statement, a bold prophecy that the Messiah, the King, is here now. And with the Messiah is the coming of the kingdom of God on earth now. Now, you put that together, and the fulfillment in Matthew of Zechariah 9, we, now we have an understanding of the central theme of the book of Zechariah, which is the prophetic proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. So if you ever read Zechariah, and I hope you do, it's a very rich book with many applications, it helps to have a phrase from the Lord's Prayer in our mind the whole time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
that gives you the key to the book of Zechariah. Now, to be clear, the kingdom that Zechariah proclaims is the unmistakably Jewish form of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God centered in the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and at the heart of it all, the temple in Jerusalem, and at the heart of that, the mercy seat, the mercy seat. Therefore, the growth of the kingdom in the idea of the coming of the kingdom of God on earth meant in Old Testament terms the ascendancy of the nation of Israel, the magnificence of the city of Jerusalem, the glories of the temple, the streaming of the nations into Jerusalem in order to be folded into the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, is centered in the atonement that is declared and remembered each, each year in the day of atonement at the mercy seat. Now, the prophecies of Zechariah are involved with eight visions and four major oracles, and they focus on God's promise to remove Israel's shame and raise it up from defeat and destroy its enemies and rebuild the city and the temple. Those prophecies must have stretched the faith of even the most faithful because it was a far, far cry from the contemporary conditions of Zechariah's day. Under Assyria and Babylonian rule and then Persia, Judah had been reduced to a tiny little province. It was a, smaller than a county, probably not, not the size of Forsyth County. A fraction of its former glory and wealth, a backwater, a Hicksville. Jerusalem's walls were broken down. The temple was a pile of rubble. The exiles were trickling back, but when they came into the city, it, those who remembered the past or even imagined what it could have been must have been struck with how sad and pathetic and depressing and discouraging. It was burned out. It was burned over. But yet, Zechariah proclaimed this will be raised up as the center of God's kingdom plan for the earth. Now, by the way, I want to just... Put in aside here, the promises of God are yes and amen. And many times we hear a promise of God and we don't see how it could possibly be. Certainly doesn't look like what we are living in right now. Hold on to the promises of God. Live into the promises of God. Let the promises of God be like a, a, a magnet to draw your soul in your faith and your actions toward what will be. Because the promises of God are true. And they will be answered, yes and amen, in Jesus. Now, for the Jews in Jerusalem, that was hard to believe, right, at this point in time. It's hard to believe for us, but we get that. God's kingdom program on earth today is very different, and we're going to look at that toward the end of the message. But nevertheless, the book of Zechariah is full of principles of God's kingdom program that are just as applicable today as they were then. And there is one of those kingdom on earth principles that Zechariah describes in one of his visions that I want to lay before you in light of this stepping further up and further into discipleship, which we always do when we come together. Particularly, it will be at the second service for those being confirmed and received. But I invite you into that same process as well. So turn back to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to read the second of Zechariah's eight visions. It's in verses 18 through 21, but I'm going to start back in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? 
And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, that means the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, the horns, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the vision is built around four horns and four craftsmen. Horns are symbols of violence, of aggression, of attack, of ripping and tearing and goring and slashing. And we can only think now what's happening in Israel. We'll come back to that a little bit later. The angel who serves as Zechariah's guide and interpreter describes these as the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem, the nations that have decimated the nations. And it was likely a description of the two great conquering war machines, Assyria and Babylonia, that swept over the land, but also two smaller, fiercely violent next-door neighbors, Edom and Syria. And so again, just to think, Israel has been familiar throughout its history with invaders both from afar and from next door. And I do literally want to stop right now. And just, this, is an, this is ad hoc in my sermon, but I think it's, it's, time, it's time for us to stop and pray for Israel right now. Would you pray with me, please? The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we lift up the nation of Israel and what is going on there, and we ask you and we cry out to you for justice and deliverance. Lord, there is so much evil going on right now, and we know that you hate evil. And Lord, we call upon you as the God who hates evil to destroy evil. And Lord, we ask you that justice will be done and that that which is true and right will be preserved. Lord, we pray for the people of Israel. So few people there believe in Jesus. Lord, we ask you to turn their hearts to you. Lord, we thank you for the Christians that are scattered there. We thank you for the Christians that are in the Palestinians. And Lord, we pray for your people, both places, and the incredible experiences they're going through right now. But Lord, we pray against the violence of terrorism. And Lord, we ask you, Father, that you may intervene on behalf. And Lord, we know your will is being unfolded on a, on a worldwide scale, a historical scale, a cosmic scale. But God, we cry out to you for justice, for deliverance, for peace in Jerusalem as we are commanded to pray. Lord, for the protection of the city. And Lord, that people all over the world, but particularly in the Middle East, will turn to you in faith. We cry out to you, Lord Jesus. Make yourself real. Make yourself present. May people turn to you and fall on their knees and cry out to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Back to the prophecy. This is a word of promise and hope. The power of the four horns is answered by the presence of four craftsmen who eventually are the cause of, of the downfall of the powers of the world. And that should give us pause. It raises a question, at least the first time I read this in my mind, craftsman, is that word a mistake? Is, it, like, is there a different translation? Something that you know, means something else? But I studied it, and actually there are no different meanings and no double entendres. It just simply means craftsmen. People like potters and weavers and carvers of wood and stone and masons and builders and metal workers. And what they were being called to do in that moment is obvious because Zechariah is declaring a kingdom-building program centered in the rebuilding of the temple. 
So these are the craftsmen or the skilled workers whose calling was to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. And through the rebuilding of the temple, the powers of the earth would be destroyed. That's what the promise is. That's frankly amazing. The temple that would be rebuilt eventually in this period of history was a shadow of Solomon's glorious temple. Ezra chapter 3 says people who came in and, and who remembered the old temple saw the new temple and wept because it was so pathetic. But Zechariah had a message for them, remember? Zechariah chapter 4, do not despise the day of small things. Something's starting here. What was beginning in the rebuilding of the temple would grow to overturn the power systems of the world, particularly the violence, power of violence and cruelty and warfare and aggression and injustice and hatred and evil. How would that come to be? Well, you can imagine that because what would happen here will eventually be the place where God will call the world to faith and to account. It's a work of God that has been fulfilled and is going to be fulfilled. Now, there's a couple of mysteries here. One is the mystery of the kingdom of God. At any time, we may look at it, and it may look very small and weak, but just wait. Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds, but as it grows, it becomes the largest plant in the garden, and the birds and the beasts come and find shelter. The parable of the hidden leaven that is invisible but penetrates and changes everything. The kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 3, verse, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the kingdom of God, blessed are the poor in spirit, the small, the weak, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So the mystery is that the kingdom may look small, but it is powerful and it will grow and it will eventually fill the earth and change everything. The other mystery concerns this particular physical temple. Zechariah's temple, the one that's beginning now, will last for centuries. It will be expanded and adorned. It will become Herod's temple. It will be the same temple where the infant Jesus will be brought at eight days old to be welcomed by Simeon and Anna, where Jesus will worship himself throughout his life and ministry, where Jesus will teach and preach and proclaim that which calls the world to faith or calls the world to account. It will be the location where the church will begin at Pentecost. It will be the place where God's kingdom will be declared on earth. But even in its heyday, and this is a little bit of a catch, it will be bypassed and swallowed up by something seemingly weak and insignificant. What do I mean? Well, turn over with me to Matthew chapter 12, the gospel reading. Matthew, like Zechariah, focuses strongly on God's kingdom on earth. His account of Jesus' life and ministry is marked by the theme of the coming of the kingdom of God. From the Magi who come to worship the newborn king of the Jews to the declaration of the charter of the kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount, I just quoted you the first verse, to Jesus' announcements and warnings about who will and who will not be in the kingdom. The end of Matthew chapter 7, he talks about people who expect to be there, won't be there. He says in Matthew 8, when the centurion expresses faith, you'll be surprised that who joins along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the kingdom table. It includes the climactic fulfillment of the triumphal entry in Zechariah 9, the coming of the king. But remember, even for his closest disciples, all his listeners would assume without question that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about was centered in the glories of the physical temple. And there was a temple in that day that looked pretty good. And the heart of a renewed and resilient Israel and a glorious Jerusalem. 
But tucked into that conversation and that kind of milieu of everybody thinking about this is what the kingdom looks like is this bold and surprising statement in verse 6 of chapter 12. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What an incredible comment in a Jewish world. Instead of the temple at the center of God's kingdom program on earth, Jesus declares that there's a person who would displace the temple as the center of God's kingdom program on earth, to whom the world will come as it was meant to come to the kingdom, I mean to the temple, to learn about the true God, to see who he is, to learn to worship him, to learn about reconciliation and forgiveness of sins through atonement. So instead of the temple program, there is the Jesus program, something greater than the temple. And then in that, by the way, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, there will be a building program, by the way. Remember that one? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is the body of Christ, the living temple made up of people who are alive to God through faith in Christ. So there is a temple, but it completely looks differently. Rather than being centralized, it is dispersed. It is localized and dispersed, and it is worldwide. And it comes everywhere where people can come to know who Jesus is. So make no mistake, at the heart of the temp kingdom program in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a personal God who wills to be known, to be in relationships, to be followed, to be worshipped, to be obeyed, who offers forgiveness and reconciliation. But now we see that one greater than the temple is here, so we no longer travel to the physical temple in Jerusalem to meet and know God and to learn about forgiveness. We come to Jesus. And in connection with him, we become the living temple on earth through which the world can come home to God to bring Jesus into the corners of the world so that people can come to the one who is greater than the temple. Now, if the new building program is what Jesus says it is, the building of his church, then now we have something to consider. How is the church built and what is our job in that building? That's really the question of the day. How is the church built? You can think about evangelism. More living stones into the temple. Discipleship, building up the strengthening of the body of Christ into maturity so that everyone is contributing. By the way, the vision is everyone is contributing. Everyone is contributing through the discipleship process to the strengthening and the building up and the stabilizing of the church so that it can be more and more effective to do the work of evangelism and bring Christ into the world. Everybody has something to give. There is the growth of holiness. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the work of pastoral care and healing and cleansing is essential for the building up of the church. There is prayer in which we do warfare for the sake of God. There is worship where we bring everybody to the culmination of what our life is meant to be. People who are worshipers of the living God. And the reason that there's witnesses Excuse me, the, the reason there is witnesses is that there, is that there are people who don't know how to worship. Because the end game is worship, really. And to bringing people to understand why we worship. So the principle of the kingdom work of God from the vision of Zechariah brought into this new kingdom plan is that the everyday worker who uses his or her skills in participating in building up the true church is contributing to the overthrow of the powers of evil. The everyday work of men and women, youth and children in this everyday world, who in their work and play and school bring glory to God and give testimony to the Savior, 
who do things all things heartily as unto the Lord, Colossians 4, who pray for their friends, who seek to grow as disciples, who help each other grow in faith and teaching and encouragement and help each other walk the road of holiness, who live to make a contribution to the good of the world, these are the people that are destroying the power of evil and overturning the power of violence in the world. And brothers and sisters, we need to be doing that. The world is not a safe place for our children and for ourselves. And we have something to do to make a difference. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God has a path and a plan for every one of us in this room. So search your hearts. What craft have you been given to do by which God is glorified and the church is built? What are your avocations? What are your hobbies? What are, those, what are your skill sets? What are your opportunities? Where are your neighbors? Where are your friends? Let me just tongue-in-cheek here, but not really. Maybe you're a passionate fan of Wake Forest football. Who do you know in that? Who are the people that you hang out with and talk to? I didn't see much ripple here. You know what I mean? There was not a lot of, not a lot of excitement here yet so far. <laughs> Bad image, I guess, perhaps. I don't know. This last week, on last Monday, I met together with a couple. Uh, they, were, they were, in all the respects, an everyday Christian couple, business man and his wife as a homemaker. And they had a passion from the time they first were married to live in the most extreme areas of poverty in the city of Raleigh that they could find. And they literally bought a house and lived 15 years in the poorest neighborhood in order to be embedded in that neighborhood. They began by prayer walking the area and the people would come out from the doors and say, you really can't be here, you're not safe. Come into our house and be safe. And they'd say, no, we're praying. And so then people began to pray, pray with them. They decided to knock on doors early in their game and offer a Bible reading event. Come and we're just gonna read the Bible together. And we'll talk about it. And they, didn't, the, the, they handed out flyers, and most of the response was pretty flat-faced, you know, dead. No, they, they, they had their night. They didn't think anybody was going to come. A hundred people showed up the first night. And they began to embed themselves. Eventually, as this area began to be gentrified, people in poverty were being booted out by their landlords in order that things could be sold and rebuilt. And so they bought multiple homes as way stations so people could be settled and safe and transition into something permanent. How did they do it? Out of their own pocket. And God gave them more and more opportunity. And for 15 years, they did that. They've moved away now because they have two teenage kids, and they said, we really need to spend the next three or four years focusing on our kids, but we're going back. We're going back. And these are not people who wear collars. In fact, if they were wearing collars, they probably couldn't do it. But these are people who've been put in a place with a heart to, to be trans agents of transformation. I could multiply those stories again and again. I had another talk last week with another fellow, a young fellow coming into ordination, who went to seminary but decided that he wanted to go in the criminal justice system. And so he began to work with teenagers who are being convicted in order to give them a way of being recovered before they went to jail. Because in jail, they learned how to live a life of crime. And so he was part of a program and spent years in his life doing that. These are the things that people do. These are the everyday craftsmen. These are the kinds of things that you and I can do. 
The centerpiece of the kingdom program of God in this generation is faithful Christians, the church, who live for the sake of the world, who realize that we have a job to do with one another, but even realizing that we are not the end game. It doesn't stop here. The growth of the church and the maturity of the church is for the sake of the world because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So how has God gifted you? How is God calling you to faithful, daily, relentless, loving, step-by-step, small, world-changing, yes, small, world-changing participation in the kingdom building that destroys evil? Think about it. And go before the Lord and ask God to direct you in his ways. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.